Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, Irish broadcaster and author Miles Dungan discusses his book, Four Killings, Land Hunger, Murder and a Family in the Irish Revolution. The moderator is one of Ireland's leading historians and commentators, Katrina Crow. The episode was recorded at Dublin Castle on the 9th of October, 2021. Hi everybody. It's kind of like being in an exam hall, isn't it? So it's all very different to what we're used to. No cogging. <laughs> no cogging. Um, it's always, it's wonderful for everyone to be able to be back at in-person events again and to, for those of us who have the privilege to talk to you from a stage like this to be able to see you instead of a tiny thumbprint on a screen or worse still, the person who has blanked their screen and gone to make tea or gone off to do something else entirely because what you're saying is so boring. There's no escape out of this, that's the other thing. So you're all very welcome today and I am delighted to be um, interviewing my old friend, Miles Dungan, uh, who has, as you've just heard, a long and um, wonderful history. And we'll say a little more about that in a minute. So we began in 2012 here in Ireland to engage with a decade and a bit of significant centenaries, which led to the foundation of our state in 1922 and the ensuing civil war, which we're just about to start embarking on next year. It's been a complicated, fascinating and largely successful enterprise made possible by the release of important archives, which have allowed scholars and the public to explore political, military, social, economic, labor, gender, and perhaps most interestingly, family history. The two most significant archival collections are the Bureau of Military History, the oral history of the period from 1913 to 1921. Note they left out the Civil War in the late 40s, early 50s. The Civil War was still too toxic to be dealt with in this way. And the Military Service Pensions Collection, which does deal with the Civil War, uh, and that collection also deals with the aftermath, life for people uh, after the revolutionary period, not just people who are active, but people who were affected, in other words, through loss, bereavement, dependency, and so on. These collections have opened up the, the personal histories of many people's ancestors, as well as answering many questions about the conduct of the conflicts. Miles Dongan has made an important, superbly researched, and beautifully written contribution to our understanding of the period in this book, Four Killings, Land Hunger, Murder, and Family in the Irish Revolution. I'm going to be able to ask some questions about this today, and that's the reverse of our usual relationship, <laughs> where he has asked me many astute and piercing and sometimes frightening questions about all sorts of things in his capacity as the person who represents Ortiz's history show, to which I'm sure many of you listen on Sunday nights during the all-too-short season during which it's broadcast, and we won't start beating that <laughs> drum. It should be on all the time. I think there's a lot of people who really miss it when it's not there. Miles, as you heard, is a historian, journalist, and broadcaster who has many books to his credit, including, very importantly, Irish Voices from the Great War, published in 1993, which is one of the most effective contributions to opening up the, the secrecy and silence around Irish families who fought in World War I, uh, something that has grown and blossomed since, so that now people are no longer ashamed of having had an ancestor who fought in World War I. That does not mean we have to dance jigs of celebration about a particularly stupid war that caused huge numbers of deaths, but it means that people can acknowledge their own past and the complexities of why people might have joined the British Army then. And that was not an easy thing to do in the 90s. Miles and a few other people 
broke new ground with all of this and made it possible for us to hear and listen to things we needed to know. Other books include The Theft of the Irish Crown Jewels, 2003, The Caption and the King, William O'Shea, Parnell and the Late, and Late Victorian Ireland, 2009, Conspiracy, Irish Political Trials, 2009, and the wonderfully titled Mr. Parnell's Rottweiler, United Ireland Newspaper, 1881-1891, published in 2013. You've heard uh, from uh, our kind introducer that Miles has a long career as a current affairs broadcaster, which of course he did, 5-7 Live and Today at 5, and of course Rattlebag, the arts programme, and much as I love Sean Rocks and Arena, not a word should be said against him, I sort of miss Rattlebag still, even though it vanished from our, our hearing in 2006. And he often sat in on current affairs programmes afterwards. I know he's told me he hates doing it. But it's always marvellous to hear his voice on the radio telling us things about politics because, of course, he's extremely well-informed about all these things and is a bit of a politics junkie in his own way, just like me. Okay. Used to be. At heart, he's a historian. And the book we have before us today is one of his best, with the added virtue that it concerns members of his own family caught, like thousands of others, in a fast-developing situation which none of them have foreseen. So, Miles, you loved your granny. May McKenna is her maiden name. You begin and end the book with her and the selective story she told you uh, about the revolutionary period when you were a boy eager to hear such stories. Tell us about her. Yeah, I mean, she was a wonderful woman. Um, she was a, a real, uh, you know, in that old-fashioned, in the, the way we now think of the word gentleman as a very old-fashioned kind of a thing, lady. Is pretty. Well. I know that if you're in the GAA, the women's teams are still called ladies' teams. I still don't can't figure out why they don't just call them women's teams. But she was a lady, and when I knew her, she spent quite a bit of time looking after me and quite a bit of time talking to me. And she talked a lot, and I listened a lot. And I suppose I got a taste for listening from her, which helps in a broadcasting career. And um, she, she was absolutely fascinating. She was one of these people who uh, she enjoyed a lot. We were talking about P.G. Woodhouse mm -hmm. outside. She would have been perfect in a P.G. Woodhouse story. And I think that's possibly one of the reasons why I, I love and still love P.G. Woodhouse, because my grandmother would, my grandmother would have been Aunt Dahlia. Not Aunt Agatha. She oh, would have been Aunt Dahlia. Gosh. So, um, yes, the kind, kind-hearted aunt. And she would devour the newspaper every day, but it would be the previous day's newspaper because uh, my mother would have devoured that day's newspaper and then would pass it on to my grandmother. So my grandmother was always about 24 hours behind. But I suppose when you're in your 80s, it doesn't really matter if you're 20, you know, 24 hours behind. But she would read everything. And she would go right down, obviously, to the death notice. She might even have started with death notices when she was in her 80s, I suppose. But she would read about things that I was fascinated about, which would have been sport, for example, you know, which would have been about soccer. So she could have a conversation with you about, uh, um, you know, about politics, and she did that a lot. Or she could have a conversation with you about, you know, uh, Leeds United versus Manchester United. And she could talk to you about Johnny Giles and Billy Bremner. She'd never watched... You know, she'd, she kind of occasionally would, you know, 
pass by a soccer game and she thought it was all very soccer was very genteel that it was always kind of after you sir and you know passing the ball around and all this kind of stuff and I, I hated to disillusion her uh, particularly when it came to somebody like Johnny Giles who was an absolutely wonderfully um and uh, so I mean I was more of a I wasn't I was not interested in I wasn't a rugby person I was really fast totally besotted with soccer at the time now it's baseball but that's beside the point if you start going on about sport now no I won't I'll stop talking about sport anyway she could talk to you about anything but what you're getting at is that every now and again she would break into recollections from her I suppose she would have been in her 20s at the time she was newly married and she would talk about the war of independence and she would talk about the black and tans and she would tell me scary stories about the black and tans coming to the house you know, uh, threat, you know, ransacking the house, what they were looking for. She didn't, she was never uh, quite specific about why they would be uh, going to her home in particular. She wasn't particularly specific about either. And, you know, threatening to burn down the house, which was something that she was very scared of because it did happen. And it happened in quite a number of instances. And I lapped this up. And there's no doubt about it that she uh, uh, infected me with an antipathy uh, towards our nearest neighbour, which has never quite, quite gone away, uh, I have to say. And, uh, you know, partly as a consequence of these nasty men with, you know, Birmingham and Liverpool accents coming and and, and, uh, disturbing and threatening my my beloved grandmother. So, uh, you know, at the age of about 10, 11, 12, I swallowed all this. Then as I got older, and as I went to UCD and studied history under, you know, Kevin B. Nolan, you know, all these, the names you know, Dudley you studied Edwards, them with Dudley Edwards. Yeah, Dudley was getting a bit beyond it now, I have to say, by the time I got, got there, he was going a bit gaga. But FX Martin, Kevin B. Nolan, you know, all of the the, the, the greats of, of that period, the people who really brought up uh, Irish history in the 70s. And I began to get sceptical about my, about my grandmother's stories. And I began to think that, okay, right, why in the name of God would the Tans have been bothered uh, to go and roust out my grandmother? Mm-hmm. And then about, this about 15 years ago, I was having a conversation with a, a cousin of mine, a first cousin of my mother's, who started telling me about her father and her uncles and their involvement in the War of Independence. And that's when I discovered and I did not discover this from my grandmother, that three of my granduncles, of her brothers, were in the IRA in, uh, in Meath, in Cavan and, and, and Meath. One she did talk a lot about was another brother, uh, who was a man called Justin McKenna. And Justin McKenna was elected in 1920 as a TD for Louth and Meath. He was in uh, the Rath camp in uh, the Curra at the time. And uh, he became a TD, Sinn Féin TD, and voted in the treaty. And she was very proud of him and talked a lot about him. I'm sure she was very proud of her other brothers, but she was not particularly proud of their IRA activities. And it was through a cousin that I learned that they were involved and got interested. Uh, But I certainly did not get any of that from my my grandmother. She talked about her own experience. She did not talk about her brother's experience. So she sort of lit flame. She lit a fire, definitely. But she was very selective in what she took, which which is not an unusual story in the Ireland uh, in between, I suppose, the end of the Civil War. Oh, yeah. And the beginning of the 80s when people, you know, I always remember the story about Jean Kerrigan, the great journalist, watching Calton Younger, who wrote the first book on the Irish Civil War, mm. on the Late Late Show. And he was there, with, he was grown up, sitting with his mother and his aunt. And he said, what civil war? What civ- we had a civil war here? Okay. History in school finished in 1916. Oh, yeah. Oh, gotcha. Which was a real con job. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
Unless um, you were a taught, taught history by a Republican priest who was a leading member of the IRA. True, then you did case. the Civil then War. Then you'd have the chance. So I did actually know about the Civil War. Anyway. You, you were luckier, or not. Or not. <laughs> so, four killings. It does what it says on the tin in this book. One in Arizona, three in Ireland. Two of the dead are your relatives. One was shot by a relative. And one was shot as punishment for shooting a relative. Mm. So... I'm going to ask you to take us briefly, because we, we want to get to the end of this before we, we move to questions and answers, to take us through them all. Start with Jack Clinton, who, quote, you say, fell foul of two of the unresolved issues of the fast-expanding American West, infatuation with gun violence and perennial quarrels about land ownership. Mm. He died in Arizona in Cochise County. Cochise County, In yeah. 1915, in the name of that county, points to another unresolved issue in the Old West. So he's a sort of outlier. I'm not saying get him out of the way quickly, mm. but just give us a, a, a short version of what Yeah, I mean, he's an outlier in one sense, but in another sense, he's related very much to the subject matter of the book because he, were it not for the land struggle in Ireland and all the problems that we have had with land over the centuries, he would never have been in Arizona. He would have been farming in, in County Meath. Um, so in that sense, he's very much an integral part of the book. And also uh, because of the fact that he was like his, his nephew, uh, five years later, was killed over, over land. And Jack Clinton was one of a number of homesteaders in Arizona. And I don't know how much you know about American history. I'm sort of totally besotted with Western American history, and I've written a book about the Irish in the American West. But 1862, civil war is going on, and you have Congress passing the Homestead Act, which permits ordinary people to buy land mostly in the western states of America. They can buy 160 acres, and uh, they, they don't pay uh, uh, there and then. Uh, if they're still there after five years, they pay literally a couple of dollars for it. And uh, it enabled people to acquire their own land. So that's what Jack Clinton did. He'd married a, a Mayo woman in, in California, uh, Delia Varley. And they went in the early 1900s and they settled in Arizona. And he built up this ranch on very, very unpromising land and was one of a number of small homesteaders in a, a part of very, very far southern Arizona, literally only a few kilometers from the Mexican border. Uh, the problem was that prior to the arrival of all these homesteaders, this had been open range. Um, you know, if you're into your Westerns, you'll know what I'm talking about. And that meant that big cattlemen, big cattle companies, uh, that's what they had become by the 20th century, were allowed to roam their animals on federal land, basically free of charge. When the homesteaders started to move in, that right wasn't completely rescinded. They could still roam their cattle on uh, on a vacant federal land, but there wasn't as much vacant federal land. And it's kind of like that, the, the great song in Oklahoma, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. Uh, you know, but they're not going to be friends because their, 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 uh, uh, their interests are antithetical. And uh, Jack Clinton basically fell foul of a big cattle company uh, which had its headquarters in California, uh, the Kern Cattle Company, but it owned a, a local Arizona cattle company called the Boquias Cattle Company. And they were constantly at loggerheads. 
and they were, uh, uh, you know, taking lumps out of each other, basically. And uh, one day, uh, June of 1915, somebody in the Bokeas Cattle Company obviously decided that Jack Clinton had gone too far. What he had done was, he was what they call a brand inspector. Uh, he had this semi-official function, a state function, and at auctions, he would supervise the sale of cattle. And if he was unhappy with the brand, uh, he would basically say, no, you, you can't sell those cattle. We're not sure what the provenance of those cattle is, so you can't sell them here. And he had questioned the brand on some steers that had been put up for auction by the Bokeas Cattle Company. Later on that night, two cowboys, both employees of the Bokeas Cattle Company, uh, one of them was uh, Ed Scarborough, who had been a lawman, and another guy called Calvin Cox arrived at uh, Jack Clinton's ranch, asked to, to speak to Clinton. Clinton came out. Uh, the, 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 the door was answered by his daughter, Rose Clinton, who died only in the year 2000, actually, on that, in that, uh, uh, on that ranch, still, still living on that ranch after, uh, whatever, what, 85 years. And she watched the whole thing as it unfolded. So Jack Clinton comes out, he is uh, wearing moccasins, he's unarmed, and an altercation uh, follows, and Ed Scarborough puts four bullets into him, one of which kills him. Rose Clinton, his daughter, who was about 11, 12 years of age at the time, witnessed the entire thing. Scarborough and Cox, Cox doesn't get off his horse, Scarborough and Cox light out for the, for the border, and after a, a, a few days, they're both captured, and they're both put on trial. Cox is acquitted because... Uh, Rose Clinton testifies to the fact that he never got down off his horse, uh, so he's acquitted. Scarborough is sent to jail uh, for manslaughter for 10 years and escapes, uh, escapes after a year. So that is basically the story of uh, my cousin, Jack Clinton, in Arizona. Interestingly, uh, and you'll appreciate this, given your own, your own background in terms of, of digital research, I researched the two Arizona chapters of this book in Ireland, and then my wife and child and I went to Berkeley. She was a, a visiting professor uh, for six months. And I researched all the Irish chapters, thanks to the, the, the military archives and the, your own beloved 1901-1911 uh, census. I researched them all from, uh, from Berkeley, from, the, from the, the library of the University of California, Berkeley. I bought one book with me, which was specifically about the, the War of Independence and Me. That's the only book I brought with me. The rest of it was all... It's was all, all getting a you lot can, easier. And it's thanks, getting thanks so much... Anybody can do it. It's fantastic. It and particularly for, for micro-history, yeah. looking at mm. particular individuals. I, the, the story of Jack Clinton, I don't know if any of you have seen Heaven's Gate, Michael Cipuccino's mm. masterpiece, which is based on the Johnson County Wars in yeah. Wyoming. Yeah. And, and absolutely captures in the most vivid way that battle between the cattle barons and the homesteaders in this case. And have you seen the four and a half hour version of it? I have. I, it's my favorite it's movie. One of my favorite movies I'd as well. I'd love to see the five hour version. Of course, it broke United Artists. Yes, it did indeed. Well, yeah. Which was a tragedy. Wonderful book by a guy called Stephen Botchko. I've read it. it. Yes, yeah, fantastic yeah. book. Yeah. Now, here we are. Anyway. Getting distracted. Getting distracted. It's my fault in that case. Okay, now we're moving back to County Meath, where you still are and run the wonderful Hinterland Festival every year, which I have the pleasure to come and talk at. Very we regularly. exploit you almost on an almost annual basis, underpay always, you. It's always a wonderful thing to do and a delightful place to be. So, 
We're going to move on to Mark Clinton, who's, uh, who's directly related to you and is a cousin of Jack Clinton's mm. death. Nephew, actually, yeah. His, his dad is a cousin, or is a, is a brother, actually, of Jack, That's right. of Jack Clinton. So one of the most interesting issues, Miles, that you raise in the book is land hunger. Mm. Now, we all kind of think we know about land hunger, but the, your take on it is the parallel conflict that's going on during the War of Independence and presumably also the Civil War, mm. Okay. which is about land grabbing and various aspects of how that works. Maybe talk to us a little about that because it gives the background to... Yeah, I mean, if, you, I would, if you're interested in, in the topic or if you become interested in the topic, I would recommend going to the Military Archives website and having a look at two uh, very, very extensive, very long and very detailed witness statements. One is from a uh, northern judge called Kevin O'Shiel, uh, who was a barrister. Uh, but became a judge in the Sinn Féin courts. And the other is uh, Kerr Davitt, who was also a young barrister. And, and it was uh, Michael Davitt's Michael Davitt's son. son. He's that Michael Davitt's son, yeah. And uh, he also becomes a judge in the Sinn Féin courts. And a lot of what they write about is what I uh, talk about in the book. Because there was this other war going on during the War of Independence. And it finally came to a head. I mean, the, the, the murder of Mark Clinton was one of the things that brought it to a head because Mark Clinton uh, was murdered. He was an IRA volunteer, but he was murdered not, but he was not executed by the IRA for spying or something like that. He was not killed by the RIC. He was not killed by the Black and Tans. He was killed by the members of a local gang known as the Cormine Gang, or rather melodramatically, the Black Hand Gang. Cormine is a tiny little village tucked away in the uh, sort of top left-hand corner of, of County Meath. Uh, you know, it's a spit away from the cabin border. And uh, there was a gang of them, and there were about a dozen or so of them, and they were basically seizing land in the area and doing so very violently. They were forcing people off their farms, blowing up people's houses and, and that kind of thing. And this was not just going on in this tiny little corner of County Meath. This was going on all over the country. And it was particularly going on in counties where particularly across the, the, the North Midlands, uh, from, you know, uh, Meath, Cavan, uh, all the way long, not so much Longford, because Longford was more of a cockpit of the War of Independence, and Sean McKeown had, uh, you know, had things under, under lock in, in Longford, but particularly Roscommon, for example. Um, so wherever there wasn't a lot of IRA activity, one of the reasons why there wasn't, a, it was kind of, a, to some extent, it was cart and horse, self-fulfilling prophecy. One of the reasons why in these areas there wasn't that much IRA activity was that the IRA were essentially acting as a Republican police force. And they were having to curtail the activities of these, uh, of these land-grabbing gangs. So you didn't get it in Cork, you didn't get it in Kerry, you didn't get it in Limerick, you certainly didn't get it in Tipperary. Uh, obviously, didn't get it in Dublin because there was no land. But anyway, so um, so this is this is going on right through, and and O'Shiel and Kerr Davitt write about it, and it goes right back to the it goes back to the land war. What was happening was, and, and, and O'Shiel, uh, no Davitt. Uh, uh, talks about, a, just he gives one particular instance of this guy who suddenly turns up, joins a local IRA unit. He's been living in the States for donkey's years. His family have been dispossessed during the land war, and he joins the local IRA unit. And with that IRA cachet, he basically forces uh, the family that took over his family's farm in the 1880s 
off their land, two sisters and a brother. And it comes before, it comes before a Sinn Féin court. And uh, Ker Davis rules in favour of the family and basically calls upon the members of the Republican police who are arrayed at the back of the hall where the trial is taking place and, uh, you know, basically tells them to execute his orders. His order is not executed. And what happens eventually is that some agreement is come to, I think, involving the Land Commission, and the family, uh, the, 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 the two sisters and the brother, are given land elsewhere. And essentially, this guy is given back the land that was taken from his family or what, by the, when his family were evicted 40 years beforehand. And that's just one story. This was going on all over the place. And you had, in some cases, they were elements within the IRA who were using the IRA as an opportunity to settle scores that went back 40 years. In some cases, in the case of the Cormean gang, uh, there were IRA volunteers involved in the, in the Cormean gang on the, U, on the QT, but it certainly did not have the approval of the local IRA, but they were mostly non-IRA figures. In fact, they were, uh, uh, they were uh, British Army veterans in a couple of cases, in two cases in particular. One was an RAF uh, veteran, one was a Boer War veteran. But they were kind of a hodgepodge, just a local gang seizing land and deciding, I'll have that bit and I'll have that bit. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know whether you want me to go on or... or uh, no, that's great. I mean, you, you, the background. you told me, which I'm going to share with the audience, that your next book is going to be about the land struggle, which is very good news because we badly need this. We're not going to understand what really happened during this decade of centenaries that we're making our way slowly through until we understand the land question. Mm. And I think, Miles, your contribution to that in, in this book is really helpful because it draws attention to a whole series of discontents that we kind of might have thought were settled by the Land Commission at that stage. Certainly mm. not. Mm. Okay, so having told us all that, Mark Clinton, yeah. tell us about what happened. Okay, Mark Clinton. So the Clintons are a relatively well-to-do family who live in and around Cormean, a little tiny little town called Clogger, uh, which is beside Cormean. And uh, they farm, good, good-sized farm, around, around about 100 acres. So they're relatively prosperous. They are uh, related to and neighbours of a family called Smith, and they're married into, the two families are married into each other. One of the Smiths, he has land in and around Cloga uh, Cormine, but his main farm is located uh, on the road between Kells and Nav at a place called Kilmainham Wood, and that's where he lives. The Cormine gang decide they're going to seize the land that he's not occupying because what you've got during this period also is you have the rise of the, of the rancher, the rise of the grazier, and you have land which has now been allocated, has been taken out of tillage and is moving into pasture. Uh, what that means, of course, is that there are lots of landless laborers, there are lots of very small farmers who do not have the possibility of getting land because this land is now being used for grazing. And if you know me, you'll know that that's the case with knobs on. Uh, uh, in, 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 in that county. So what this gang decide to do is that they're going to take Smith's second farm, which he is, which he's renting out. And they began to begin to threaten them. And uh, uh, he then goes to his cousins, the Clintons, and says, will you back me up? And he actually offers Joe Clinton, who is the father of Mark Clinton, uh, he offers him at a reduced rate, he offers him a few acres, a field, uh, at a knocked up at a third of what he would normally expect to pay. So uh, the Clintons decide, okay, 
and maybe they had economic reasons for doing it as well, but they decide that they will back up the Smiths, that they will rent the land and that they will make sure that the Cormine gang don't go anywhere near it. So uh, they move in in uh, May of 1920 and one of the Clintons, Peter, Peter Clinton, uh, Peter Clinton goes in and starts to plough the land and is immediately attacked. He's fired on, doesn't know from where, he's, he's hit, he's not seriously wounded. And then the following day, his brother, or a couple of days later actually, his brother Mark Clinton, his older brother, who's an IRA volunteer, Peter Clinton is not in the IRA at this stage, Mark Clinton goes in and starts with two plough horses and starts ploughing the field. And some hours later, his father finds him dying in the field. The two plough horses have been shot dead and his son is dying. And what emerges is that when he started ploughing the field, Mark Clinton was approached by a group of about five people, one of whom was armed. There was some kind of an altercation and, and he, he is, he's shot and, and, and he dies. As to whether he identified the five people who were uh, involved in, in killing him, because he was, uh, you know, he was still alive, he was able to talk to his father, I'm 90% certain he did. The father denied this at the inquest, but uh, you know, he would, wouldn't he? Because his father knew his son, Mark Clinton's brother, Patrick Clinton, was the intelligence officer for the Meath IRA, lived in Dunboyne, and was very close to Sean Boylan who was the officer commanding the Meath IRA. So Joe Clinton knew damn well that uh, it would be that this uh, uh, atrocity would be dealt with in an extrajudicial, extra-legal fashion. So when it came to the, the formal inquest, uh, he said that he was, his, his, um, his son had not told him who the five people were. But within a very short period of time, the IRA know exactly who was involved in the killing. They know all of the members of the gang and they round up the members of the gang in an operation that takes place in, in uh, one night. They miss one of them and that's uh, crucial as part of the story. That's, that's William Gordon who we'll, we'll come to in a moment. You're, you're very interesting on the whole matter of the, the IRA rounding up people and taking them to an unknown destination. Yes, yes, yeah. That's the, that, was the, that was the cliche. That became a cliche during the War of Independence, unknown, unknown destination. destination. But it's is... fascinating from the book, the number of possible unknown destinations oh, yeah. Yeah. where they could safely take prisoners mm -hmm. to interrogate them mm -hmm. to do whatever they needed. Yeah, I mean, some of them were safe houses that some were of them being were looked houses. after yeah. by people where they were very welcome. But other ones uh, where, the, where, the, where the, his gang was rounded up, they were taken to a big house, a lovely old house in a place called Kilskir, which is a lovely village where the, uh, the, the man who wrote We Keep the Red Flag Flying, uh, Jim Kiernan, was born. And so they, it's a place called Boltan Hall. And it was owned, it was unoccupied at the time. It was owned by a racehorse trainer who had trained uh, a wonderful horse who won the Grand National twice, a horse called Manifesto. And some of them were actually uh, dumped into, Manifesto was dead, obviously, at this stage. It was in the 1890s he won the, the Grand National. But uh, they were thrown into Manifesto's stable. And you have a lovely detail about the stables being lined with marble. Yes, Manifesto. well, Manifesto's stable was lined I'm, with I'm marble. I'm not sure if horses like being in marble. I'm sure they did. <laughs> it's kind of cool as, as a thing. So, yeah, so they're basically dumped, they're kept under, under lock and key in this unoccupied large house, Town Hall. And one of the IRA volunteers talks about Michael Collins mm -hmm. actually visiting 
and a, a, a guy called Noy, he calls Noy. him Noyek. Noyk was his name. He was, a, he was a, an IRA solicitor, basically. He represented uh, Sinn Féin and, and uh, convicted or, or, or accused members of the IRA in Dublin in many cases. And he was a kind of legal advisor, if you like, to, to Collins. I mean, uh, Boylan, Sean Boylan, who was the, the father of the, the, the greatest uh, GAA coach of all time, no bias there. No, 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 <laughs> better, better than now? any, better than Kevin Hafford and better than any Dublin coach. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, he, well, he and Collins were both members of the IRB and were both were both were very very close. They were personal friends, and uh, so Collins was down checking uh, because this was this was unique. The murder of Mike of Mark Clinton was unique in that this was the only occasion uh, on which uh, in which. Anybody, the IRA put anybody on trial for, for murder uh, it, during the course of the, of the War of Independence and actually executed somebody uh, for, for murder. They didn't leave it to the civil authorities. And there's a very good reason why they didn't leave it to the civil authorities. Okay, so let's move on smoothly, as you've set it up, Chris, to William Gordon, who was the person not captured at yeah. the time of the IRA's rounding up of the rest of the Black Hand gang. Yeah. Tell us about him. He's the person who did the actual... Killing. William and Gordon. He then becomes the third killing. He becomes the third killing. William Gordon was a Presbyterian from a small townland called Trohanny near Bailaborough in County Cavan. And he, he had joined the RAF. He was one of these wonderful, um, uh, a bit like the, the British Army or British Forces equivalent of the Trusiliers. As you're probably aware, at the, right at the end, the last three months of the First World War, recruitment in Ireland absolutely shot up. And you had 10,000 people joining the British Armed Forces in the last three months of the war, knowing damn well that they would never hear a single shot fired in anger. Of the 10,000, half of them joined the Royal Air Force <laughs> because they, maybe they had some romantic idea of becoming pilots or maybe they just wanted to be trained as engineers and fitters. Mm. And that's what happened. This guy, William Gordon, has been, was trained as a, as, a, as a fitter, but he was also given weapons training and he used it uh, to, kill, uh, to kill Mark Clinton. When Boylan sets off on this nighttime expedition and rounds up um, they rounded up a dozen, in actual fact. They let three of them go, and they, uh, they have en ended up convicting nine of them. The one person they missed was the one person they really wanted, and that was William Gordon. Uh, because William Gordon had just prior to the IRA operation been lifted by the RIC. He'd been arrested by the RIC on very, very spurious grounds indeed. Not for the murder of Mark Clinton but for possession of a, of a, of a weapon. And he ends up, he's, he's sent to, to Mount Joy, and he's brought down from Mount Joy a few weeks later, and he's put on trial in Navin, and he's acquitted. But I have no doubt whatever that uh, somebody in the Meath IRA, the Meath IRA was, I think, uh, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest, was very, very heavily infiltrated by spies. The Meath IRA spent most of its time not killing members of the RIC or members of the Black and Tans. They didn't get a single Black and Tan during the course of the War of Independence. But by God, they killed a lot of spies and informers, proportionately more than any other county in Ireland, including Cork, in proportion to the, the number of, of, of casualties. Uh, in Cork, 10% of the, uh, of the fatalities in the War of Independence were uh, IRA victims of, of IRA executions. In, in Meath, it's more than 50% of the, of, the, of the fatalities. So, Meath IRA, heavily infiltrated. RIC, undoubtedly tipped off. 
very, very likely, Gordon and some of the members of the Cormine gang are acting as agent provocateur for the RIC, so he is protectively lifted, and they come up with this spurious offence. I suspect also that when he went into Mountjoy, that he was being used in Mountjoy to spy on other prisoners, and that was something that the uh, that they did. That the Dublin Castle authorities did a lot is that they would put people into the Joy and as prisoners, and that uh, they would be spying on the IRA prisoners. So anyway, they miss, they don't get Gordon, which really annoys Boylan. So Boylan has a particular interest in the trial at the assizes of William Gordon. The Gordon is brought back down from Dublin to Navan, and he appears before the assizes. The case is over within minutes, and Boylan almost misses him. But fortunately, a reporter, who I suspect is a... Uh, an uncle or grandfather or something like that of the great Meath footballer Liam Hayes, tips off Boylan that Gordon has been acquitted and Gordon has been released and Gordon is now about to head for the hills. So Boylan orders every pub in Navan to be searched and they get lucky, they find him. Instead of getting the hell out of Navan and getting as far away as possible, Gordon, who has suddenly come into money, nobody knows how, uh, but Gordon is drinking with two members of the RIC in a place called the Flathouse Pub, a stone's throw from the railway station in Navan, uh, where presumably he intends to to go after he finishes drinking. He doesn't get that opportunity. Boylan comes in uh, with a revolver, holds up the two RIC men, puts Gordon into a car, drives him to his own uh, uh, bailiwick of Dunboyne, and he's held there uh, for a number of weeks. He's put on trial twice, and it's, it's, it's extremely kosher. This is not an IRA kangaroo court or anything like that. They bring down very, very high-ranking IRA officials, uh, uh, officers from Dublin, and he is put on trial, and he's found guilty of murder. And Boylan is not quite sure exactly what he should do with them because, the, you know, it's a capital offence and the penalty is, is death. So Boylan goes to Collins and consults Collins. Collins consults the cabinet. The cabinet demurs, in particular, Countess Markievicz and Ernest Blythe. Who I never thought had a heart until now. Well, uh, yeah, no, it may have been something to do with the fact that both of them were Presbyterians. True. Might have had something to do with it, I don't know. And I didn't think Constance Markovich was too bothered either about well, yeah. extrajudicial executions. We, we, we could divert into an interesting we conversation could, about the Countess, but we won't. Countess, but we won't. Not, not, I don't think, I'm, I'm certainly not a fan, but anyway, I don't think you are either. But, um, I prefer her sister, let's put it that way. Yes, uh, very much so. So, okay, fire ahead. The, anyway, yes. They, so, they demur. And, and what happens is that uh, uh, Boylan is told, put him on trial again. Okay. They put him on trial again with a um, s- similar high-ranking group of, of ju- three, three judges who are brought down. And there's a defence attorney. Oh, yeah. All, prosecution. Absolutely. Lawyer, all, all of that. It's all kosher. It's all very, very kosher. It is, it's not a Sinn Féin court in the sense that you don't have Kevin O'Sheill or Kerr Davitt, right. uh, but it is, it's a court-martial because sure. there are three, sure. uh, you know, it's, it's as much of a court-martial as the 1916 uh, courts-martial were uh, and probably about as legal. But anyway, the second time around, he's also found guilty. Uh, Boylan goes back to Collins, says, what do we do? Collins says, do what you like. And Boylan decides, I'm going to execute him. And Boylan personally is involved personally in the execution of William Gordon, whose body is dumped in a quarry in uh, somewhere around Dunboyne, and his body has never been, his, his body's never been found. So it's out there somewhere. Uh, William Gordon does not rest peacefully. 
Well, that story sheds light on the, the whole business of land hunger and land grabbing and parallel struggles with, with the, the one for independence. The last one, the fourth story, is the story of Patrick Keelan. And this brings you into another interesting discourse on, on spies and informers. You've said a little about it already, mm. that how this operates in terms of, of the IRA. I, I'm a, I was amazed to read the disproportionate number of spies and informers killed in Meath compared mm. to other places. Yeah. I, I was really surprised by yeah. that. That's one of the really surprising things mm. of many that come out mm. in the book here. But Patrick Keelan is executed for being a spy, yeah. informer, by a group including some of your McKenna relatives who are now moving into the purview yeah. of the McKenna family. This was a very reckless, very young man, Patrick Keelan. But tell us how this, this came to pass. Yeah, these are... T.P. McKenna and Sarah Clinton. So that's my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather. So the Clintons and the McKennas were married, both from Mulla in County Cavan, and, uh, and, and, and both married. So we're moving now from her relatives to his sons, basically. So uh, what happens is that the, uh, as I say, the Meath IRA heavily, heavily infiltrated and very focused in 1921 on, uh, on, on shooting informers. Uh, and that's really almost their entire focus. And they get through, uh, they get through at least eight of them, uh, which is a lot when you consider that in County Meath, during the War of Independence, the two years of the War of Independence, there were six military fatalities, three dead IRA, uh, three dead Crown forces. But there are, so there are more, I'm including, in fairness, I'm including William Gordon in that age. So he's not technically a spy or an informer. So what happens in the case of, of this Patrick Keelan? Keelan is a young, he's only 19 years old. He's only a kid, basically. And he is what we would have called in rural Ireland in my youth, a bit slow. Yeah. yeah. In other words, he had, he had learning difficulties, uh, uh, that, you know, would be the... Uh, the modern way of, of referring to it, worked on a farm as a farm labourer, fell out with the farmer um, and decided to get his own back on the farmer and thought, oh, I had a great idea, went to the authorities and said that the farmer uh, was uh, storing IRA weapons on his, on his farm. The military, not, not the towns, but the military, the uh, South Wales borderers, uh, come and search the farm. They find a few kind of, they find old st shotgun stocks, uh, you know, of no great significance. But they decide, you know, times being what they were, to lift the farmer and bring him up to Mountjoy. So he spends a month basically in jail in, in Mountjoy. The IRA take a very dim view of this for obvious reasons. They, in their turn, lift Patrick Keelan. They bring him to an unknown destination, uh, which ironically is a, a, a deserted outhouse uh, on a farm literally a few hundred metres away from where Mark Clinton was, was murdered. And they hold him there for a few days. They presumably rough him up a bit. They question him and they send him on his way with his tail between his legs with the warning, be of good future behaviour. Rather foolishly, he decides he's going to get his own back on the IRA. Not a good move. And he goes to the South Wales borderers. He goes to the Black and Tans. He goes to the Crown Forces, basically, and offers himself uh, as a, an identifier. This is a, a phrase that was used at the time. Portico O'Rourke, Portico uh, O'Rourke, familiarised me with it. And identifiers used to go round with the Tans 
in uh, you know, crossley tenders or armored cars or whatever, and they would point out houses and say, so-and-so lives there, uh, or they would point out individuals and say, you know, so-and-so is the second in command of the local IRA unit or, or whatever. So they operated as spies. So he uh, is doing this for a period of about three months, and he's, he's locked away, uh, he's kept safe by the Crown forces, and he's going out from time to time, and he's identifying. And this is known by the local IRA, so they are very anxious to talk to him. Uh, uh, he, he, at some point, Patrick Keelan feels lonely for his mammy, and uh, he goes home to a, a little village of near, near Kilmainham Wood, and, uh, which is in County Cavan, just on the Cavanmeath border. And, of course, within, presumably, probably within minutes, uh, the IRA get wind of the fact that he's there. They kidnap him. They take him. They, uh, they put him on, on trial. Now, this trial was nothing like the trial that William Gordon got. It was basically a very, very rapid court-martial. And the local unit of the IRA decides that they're going to dispatch uh, Patrick Keelan. Um, they must have been conscious of the fact that there would be local opposition to this. They must have been conscious of the fact that local people would know that Patrick Keelan was a bit of an idiot, that he was a bit slow, that uh, he was not really responsible for his own actions. But they decide they're going to execute him anyway. But they don't do it themselves. And they basically go to the next unit across, which unfortunately for my, uh, two of my granduncles and Anna Clinton cousin happens to be their unit, Mullah Minolte unit. And they basically recruit members of the Mullah Minolte unit to actually perform the execution so that there won't be any local blood on the hands of the local commanders who actually convict him in the first place. So T.P. McKenna, who is the son of that T.P. McKenna, the youngest son of that T.P. McKenna, John McKenna, his older brother, both of whom are in the IRA. Uh, T.P. McKenna has been in the IRA in Dublin. Uh, he, has, he was a medical student in UCD. He was in the same class as Kevin Barry. He was friends of, of Kevin Barry. And then after Bloody Sunday, even though he wasn't, I don't, I'm not aware, there's no evidence that he was directly involved, he's basically sent back down to Cavan Meath to organise a flying column. And he's involved in the organization of the Flying Council. So T.P. McKenna, John McKenna, and Peter Clinton, who is their cousin, who is the brother of Mark Clinton, who's the guy who is shot in the field by the Cormine gang a couple of days before Mark Clinton is murdered. And they are brought to um, a very pretty uh, part of the country, uh, a wood. Doesn't look at all sinister. Garriard Wood outside Minolte which adjoined McKenna land, which was worked by John McKenna at the time. And a grave is dug for Patrick Keelan, and uh, he's shot, and he's put in the grave. And I don't know specifically what part T.P. McKenna or Peter Clinton played, but uh, you can be damn sure that it was the first or second, the night of the 1st and 2nd of July, 1921. You could be damn sure the IRA did not bring along too many observers, uh, that anybody who was, you know, who went there was involved. They were either involved. The grave had been dug by a couple of local kids. They hadn't even dug the graves themselves, shallow grave. John McKenna, we know definitely, and I came across this and I had the difficult task of informing his cousin, or my cousin, his son, 
that his father had been involved in the in the execution of somebody, and it all added up for 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 Joe. Joe's my cousin, Joe McKenna. Uh, he's brought to this wood, and he is he's executed, and his body is buried there. Um, I mentioned my cousin Joe. Joe is the son of John McKenna. John McKenna's witness statement. He states quite clearly that he was involved. He was in the firing squad. Doesn't say who else is in the firing squad, but he says he was in the firing squad. That's a place called Garryard Wood, a couple of hundred meters away in a slight, you know, different direction. There's another wood. Um, so it's a lovely countryside. It looks like something you'd see in, uh, you know, in, in, in the First World War, in, in, not in, in, in Picardy, in France. And there's another wood nearby. In that wood, to this day, is the body of another IRA victim. Uh, a man called Bradley, a postman from Carnaross called Bradley, who's brought to this wood, Rathmanu Wood, it's called. He's shot, he's buried, his body is never recovered. It's still there somewhere. It's still in that wood somewhere. Keelan uh, is then executed in this wood a couple of hundred meters, a couple of hundred meters away. And, I mean, I go on, if you like, about what happened to the body subsequently. I think we're, we're, because we want to get the, give the audience a chance to ask some questions. So we'll, I mean, it's an extraordinary story. And one of the admirable things about all of this is your capacity to contemplate the activities of your own uh, predecessors, mm. your ancestors in all of this, which is one of the things that's coming out of this new interest in, in, in personal history during the, the War of Independence and the Civil War. People are, are confronting things about their own pasts mm. that are sometimes very uncomfortable. Yeah, And well, it's fascinating to, to watch that happen and to see how, how honorable people are. Yeah, I mean, the, the Joe, Joe McKenna, who's my cousin, who's an absolutely lovely guy, he's the nicest, gentlest person you could possibly meet, as was his father. His father was just the most sweet, affable, wonderful uh, individual. His, Joe told me the story that he, because he lived around that area there where that wood is, and um, he used to play around that area. And he, one day he said to his father, uh, his father was asking him, what were you playing today? What were you doing today? Oh, we were looking for bodies in the wood, Dad. Because there was a local story that there were bodies in both of these woods. And he, Joe said it was the only time in his life he ever remembers his father getting angry. And he said, stop playing that game and do not go near those woods ever again. And Joe wondered why. And uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, I was able to tell him why. Part of the long silence. Yeah. He, uh, jo Joe, John McKenna never spoke about the War of Independence. And John McKenna had a very honorable record mm. in the War of Independence in the IRA. He stood up to the Black and Tans on a couple of occasions, was threatened that he would be killed and his house would be burnt down if he didn't repair a bridge that the IRA had, had, had destroyed and uh, basically refused and didn't, wouldn't allow anybody else to, to repair it either. Basically, that was black and tans. And uh, so he had a very honorable, uh, but never, ever, ever talked about the, the War of Independence. Of course, one of the reasons for firing squads is that no one in that squad yeah. knows who fired the fatal it, shot. Who actually, yeah. It's a way of yeah. protecting the, the, the shooters. And they copied, they, they, they yeah. did, you know, I mean, there's a, const, there's a notion that IRA executions were, you know, bullet to the head. They weren't, no, not in, during the War of Independence. During the Troubles, yes, not during the War of Independence because they ate the, the British fire. They didn't have, you know, a dozen or half a dozen uh, shooters. They, they generally would have had three, had three shooters. But John McKenna also then a couple of years later, um, for a variety of reasons, was forced to disinter the body of Patrick, Patrick Keelan because the family were hassling the Free State Government what happened to him is he buried in consecrated ground. So uh, I've come across documentation 
whereby uh, it's very clear that what happened was that the body was, uh, was disinterred. And that was part of McKenna family tradition, that John McKenna had been involved in the exhumation of the body of Patrick Keelan. But not but the, the execution. No, but not the execution. And I'm, I have, I'm morally certain that this is where he's buried. That's the McKenna family plot in, uh, in Minolte Cemetery. That is my, that's my daughter. And uh, so she's the great-great-granddaughter of T.P. McKenna. And I think that he was probably, because they, they, the Free State Government are able to send a letter to the Keelans to say, yes, your son is buried in consecrated ground. And I think that's where he's buried. 20 years later, um, my um, twin, uh, I never met them because they died before I was born, long before I was born, my twin brother and sister are buried in that grave beside the body, somewhere near the body of Patrick Keelan, who their uncle would have uh, executed in 1921. Astonishing story, Miles. I think you've given us a really good picture of the killings that you describe in the book, but also the, the interlinking discourses that you have about different things uh, there. But in case you think this is a very grim read, I just want to quote you uh, a few of Miles' smart remarks, of which there are many. Uh, and history is not just about telling you the facts, it's about how you tell them. A good writer makes all the difference. And this is a beautifully written book with lots of fun. So this is him on anonymous threatening letters to landlords. Quote, the early 20th century equivalent of today's courageous trolling keyboard warriors, giddy in the security of their anonymity, whose interventions on social media ensure such a heady level of lucid political discourse. <laughs> End quote. Those who rejoined the IRA, which we mentioned earlier, when the end of the conflict was in sight, quote, some of those who never managed to find the time to spend hours in freezing damp fields, lying in wait for black and tan patrols that never came, made opportunistic comebacks once the truce had been declared. This was a nationwide phenomenon that led to the coinage of a fittingly caustic neologism. Those who returned were christened truceliers, or summer soldiers in some cases. Summer soldiers, yeah. On the rivalry between the IRA and the ancient order of Hibernians, who would have been huge supporters of the old Irish uh, parliamentary party, wiped out in the 1918 election. Quote, the latter, that's the ancient order of Hibernians, often abetted by their tradition adversaries in the Orange Order. So this is a nationalist organization combining with uh, a, a virulently anti-nationalist one. And Miles says, the word irony simply cannot cope. Finally, perceptions of the IRA not everyone was convinced by notions of a chivalrous IRA populated by latter-day crew Collins. <laughs> so, you're going to get plenty of fun out of the book. Um, there's, there, there's, we could talk for another two hours about this. There's so much to, to, to reflect on. One thing I, I would love to ask you, but I, I, we're, we're stuck for time, is to, to bring us through your sort of summing up of the, the, the period that you give us at the end of the book. But maybe somebody will ask you that and save me the trouble. Anyone like to ask a question? Don't be shy. I've read the book and thoroughly enjoyed it, so congratulations. I just want to ask you, you said that um, the Mead IRA were in heavily, heavily infiltrated by spies. Would Sean Boylan, with his connections to Collins, not have sussed that at any stage? Oh, oh he did. He did. But the problem was proof. Um, if you, if you uh, read Sean Boylan's Bureau of Military History witness statement, and he makes very specific allegations against uh, certain individuals. Now, you, you have to be careful with this. Katrina will tell you the same thing. Mm. The pension application uh, uh, files are, they're not impeccable, 
but they are they have a very very high degree of accuracy and they're much closer in time to the yeah. things they're describing well, yes memory true. hasn't had time yeah to do exactly that. they're in some cases literally within only a couple of years yeah. and you know generally speaking no more than 10 or 15 years the military history witness statements have the yeah they have the problem of the the, the you know the infamous corrosive memory but also they have the problem of people settling scores. So you can never be entirely certain. Sean Boylan went on to become a general in the National Army um, and recruited T.P. McKenna Jr., who became a colonel in the, in the National Army. And some of the people that he has a go at, one in particular, uh, who would, be a very, would have been a very prominent uh, individual in Navan in the 1920s and 1930s. And, Boylan accuses him of being an, an RUC or an R, uh, RIC spy in his witness statement. Now, Boylan makes that statement safe in the knowledge that it will not appear until after he dies. He's, he'll be long dead before it appears. Uh, so you can't be entirely, you can't be in, in, entirely certain. But uh, he was aware, he was certainly, he and others, his deputy, Seamus Finn, uh, Seamus Finn also makes a, a statement to the Bureau of Military History. And Finn talks a lot about how leaky the, uh, the, Meath, the Meath IRA probably was. And certainly they went on the rampage. I mean, they, all of the, 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 the uh, spies and informers, and they, they attempted to kill uh, a number of others. So the, the, the number certainly would have gone, easily gone into double figures. And all of these were killed within, within a period of about three months uh, in, in 1921. Uh, Bradley, who I mentioned, who was in Rathmanu Wood, one of that, the body, which, which is still there, he was the earliest one to be killed. He was killed in January. Caelan was the last one to be killed. And in between, uh, uh, they killed five or six others, and they attempted to kill uh, three or four more. And they had others on their list. They had a list, you know, very Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, they had a little list and had the truce. Um, it's very interesting. It's fascinating because if you, if you read the, uh, the Collins papers in the military archive, during the truce period, the IRA suddenly become very Teutonic and everything is written down and everything is recorded and intelligence officers from all over the country are sending reports to their regional intelligence officers, which in the case of my family means that Raphael McKenna, um, the brother, the father of the actor T.P. McKenna, who is the local intelligence officer in Mullah, is sending reports to Patrick Clinton, his cousin, who is the intelligence officer of the Eastern Division, and those are then being sent up to GHQ. And you can, you can read all these. They're all in the, in the Collins papers. But what's very interesting is, the, in, I know in Meath, the monitoring of suspected spies, informers, uh, people who are considered to be fellow travelers. The Meath IRA, you love this, the Meath IRA <laughs> were monitoring the activities of every local golf club, cricket club, and <laughs> tennis club. And they, had, they, they list the names of people who are members of these uh, bodies who they suspect are either collaborators or have been collaborators or will be collaborators. Uh, you know, all of this stuff is, is, is going on. So they are, I mean, by the end of the War of Independence, by the time the truce comes around, Boylan is absolutely paranoid. And he knows that the Meath IRA is very, very heavily infiltrated. They have a very, very high failure rate. 
a lot of operations that were planned and were due to take place for some reason don't happen. The tans don't show up. Something goes wrong. And it's not like the weather changes or something like that. Um, and I have no doubt that uh, Boylan is absolutely right. And a lot of these operations are stymied because the, uh, the authorities are informed. Now, it works both ways because Dunshockland RIC station, as far as I can see, is infested with IRA fellow travellers. Mm -hmm. And some of the IRA killings and some of the IRA attempted killings come about because of information that has come from within Dunshockland RIC station to, uh, to Boylan and to, the to Patrick Clinton, to the intelligence officer of the Eastern Division of the, of the IRA. So it does cut both ways, but it, they were heavily, heavily infiltrated. And that's why I think that when they went to round up the, uh, the Cormean gang, the one they missed was the most important of all, was, was William Gordon. Sorry, this might be totally off topic, but can you explain what this obsession with the land, which resulted in all these killings, is kind of still part of our <laughs> culture today with what happened recently with some recent killings? Yeah, well, I mean, th th this is something that I'm now beginning to research uh, very, very specifically. And, uh, you know, there's no doubt we have. I, I, I've, I, in order to ensure that I got a contract from the nice people in Head of Zeus, I wrote an introduction uh, to the book. And the introduction uh, takes us back all of 11 years to the bailout and uh, to me being in, uh, going into, I was talking to Katrina about this earlier, me going in on a Sunday evening in 2010 to do what I thought was going to be a history show, except that the IMF had arrived in town and the, the bailout was pending and there was a going to be a press conference. So uh, we suddenly decided, well, we're not doing a history show. And we went, <laughs> we went on air with nothing. Uh, doing history as it was made. Doing history as it was made, basically. We had the only, all we had, we had Peter Bacon, uh, bless him, then an economist, later a Fine Gael TD. And, Who and, warned and, them three times. So, oh, yeah, absolutely. So he was a good man, but we, we, he came into studio. So that was all we had. And uh, so the introduction is basically all about our obsession with property. I mean, you know, and you can call it property, you can call it land, you can call it whatever you want. But it's in, it's, it is in our DNA, and it's all about dispossession. And, you know, you could say it goes back to the famine, or you could say it goes back to 1641, but it's there. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, we're not, I, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, the notion of, of renting is still something that is absolutely anathema to the Irish people. And, you know, Irish, the Irish uh, uh, tenant farmers or whatever struggled for the guts of 100 years, basically, and or longer, uh, not, not in all cases, but in some cases, to become the owners and the proprietors of, of their own land. And this was the, this was the obsession. And Be they succeeded, yeah. which is the fascinating thing. Oh, yeah. But others were left out. Yes, and yeah, I think absolutely. You, you have a very firm grasp of yeah. who they were and why. Yeah. So, folks, we'll be back here again, I think, in about three years' time. When Miles has three years, I'm giving you, honey. And in that time, I Head have Head of Zeus are not giving me three years. Land. They're giving me a year and a half. <laughs> okay. But get on it, because this is such an important question. And the question asked by the gentleman just there goes to the heart of something we haven't really explored to the extent that we need to, to have a full understanding, not just of what happened 300, 200, 100 years ago, 
but right now. So when Miles writes that book, I'm putting a very light burden on your shoulders, my friend. <laughs> um, we'll be back in here talking about that. Just a quick question. Um, you probably come across the Renting Commission that looked at um, a lot of Protestant claims. Uh, I noticed in West Cork that there was a lot of Protestants that there was a land grab on them. Is there anything like that going up in Mead? No. Uh, very interesting. Uh, none of the IRA victims in County Mead, with the exception of, of William Gordon, were Protestant. Gordon, and then Gordon has nothing to do with, he's not a spy, he's not an informer, he's a murderer. And he is executed as, uh, uh, you know, as, a, as, a, as a, the, you know, somebody who has committed a, a capital offence. All of the victims in Meath and uh, now I think there was one in Cavan, there was a uh, local Church of Ireland rector who is pretty viciously murdered, uh, as far as I recall. But in Meath, no, they're, they're all Catholics. All of the victims are Catholic. Now, having said that, almost all of them have some connection, former connection uh, to the security forces. So they were uh, World War I veterans. Uh, in one case, there was somebody who was a retired member of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. But they were all they were all Catholic. So that kind of uh, suspicion, or more than a suspicion, uh, you know, and certainly there have been some very interesting, uh, um, you know, and some would say ill-informed books, others would say well-informed books written about, uh, you know, anti-Protestant pogroms in, in in Cork, for example, or or in Munster. But that wasn't certainly wasn't the case. It wasn't in 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 uh, in Meath. In fact, in Meath, it was more likely, and this was a bit embarrassing for the IRA uh, in Meath. In Meath, it was more likely that if you were a Protestant landowner and somebody who was not a member of the IRA came and robbed, because there was a lot of opportunism going on and there was a lot of crime uh, going on, a, a lot of, of uh, people arriving in the dead of night with guns and uh, into you know, a big house and uh, stealing the contents of the big house. And uh, Sean Boylan was called upon to investigate or decided on a number of occasions to investigate uh, some of these uh, uh, robberies that were taking place. And in, on many occasions, and on one notable occasion in particular, he actually arrived up to the house of a very, very prominent local unionist landowner and handed him back everything and told him, by the way, uh, 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 it was stolen by X, Y, and Z. Uh, we have them in custody at the moment, and the uh, the proceeds of the crime were about to be fenced by the local RIC man. He had had a conversation with Boylan before, and uh, Boylan had offered to try and track down the criminals, and this unionist grandee had basically dismissed him and said, no, the, the RIC are investigating. And uh, Boylan was able to tell him that it was an RIC man who was going to fence the proceeds of the of the of the burglary. So that's the kind of thing that was going on. I'm not saying that they were, you know, they were without without sin or without blemish. There's no doubt about it. They weren't without blemish. But th that kind of stuff wasn't going on in this particular bailiwick anyway. All the victims were Catholic. Mm. We've lots more to learn about all of this. Just to say to you all, for those of you who don't already know about the Bureau of Military History which Miles has referred to several times to witness statements. I lived there. I, I know. <laughs> Online. Me too. I mean, it's, it's, well, I got them released to the public. You did, I know. Which I was I very pleased yeah. with after years and years of fighting to have it. You go online, you just put in Bureau of Military History into Google and up straight away it will come. 35,000 35, pages mm. of testimony given by people active 
from 1913 up to 1921 uh, during the revolutionary period in their own words. So it's the oral history of the revolutionary period. Beware, because you'll go down a rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. And once you and, start, it's very hard to stop. Even though they weren't supposed to talk about the Civil War, they did. They did. A yeah. lot of them did. And that's going to be very, very interesting that, when it comes to the commemoration. We, we need Eve Morrison, God bless her, to finish her book on the Bureau and give it to yeah. us so we, we can have a guide. But it is a wonderful way to pass the time should you be bored. I think a lot of people during lockdown got oh, yeah. great solace from the Bureau of Military History because it was damn all else to do except investigate their ancestors' behaviour which, of course, Miles has done so brilliantly for us in this book, and I really commend it to you. There is an aspect of a thriller about it, that you're dying to know what happens next. Who will the next killing be? Slightly macabre, but it's all there. And it's, it's liberally peppered with his own observations on matters of great importance, including a brilliant summing up at the end of what he thinks. He has a very beady eye in terms of looking uh, at the, the revolutionary period. He couldn't be accused of being sentimental about it. <laughs> Or about the, the free state which, which uh, succeeded oh, no. all of that. And that's reflected also in his own capacity to look at his own ancestors uh, with, with an unprejudiced eye, which is part, I think, of the, the great fruit of these archival legacies that we have. I'd, uh, we've I'd, got I'd love now. to have, I'd love for my granny to come back and I'd love to have a chat with her now. I should. <laughs> I wish I could step in, but alas, <laughs> don't have that capacity. Could you all please thank Miles Duncan for a wonderful day? Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter where we're at, at HistFest. HistFest.